Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A federal judge delays ruling on Trump's request for a special master. Was the judge swayed by allegations that a Trump attorney lied? A lawsuit uncovers emails between federal officials and big tech companies. It claims the emails show how the administration censors topics like COVID-19 and Hunter Biden. As we learn more information, we keep finding more and more people are involved, that this is larger uh, and more sweeping than anybody ever knew. Arizona's governor visits Taiwan, making him the latest U.S. politician to visit the island following Beijing's fiery reaction to the House Speaker's trip. Californians are warned to not charge their electric cars. This comes just days after the state announced plans to ban the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. The New York Supreme Court rules that the state can't forcibly place people in quarantine facilities. But the governor is reportedly planning to appeal. A lawmaker's response. This is something you see in a communist dictatorship, not in a free society. An NTD exclusive with Turning Point USA founder Charlie Kirk. Why he says U.S. colleges are a scam and what he says you can do about it. And the Denver Broncos made their starting quarterback the second highest paid player in the game today. We'll go over his nine-figure deal. Today, a federal judge declined to rule on whether to grant former President Trump's request for a special master. NTD's Arlene Richards has the update. After hearing oral arguments Thursday on whether or not to appoint a special master, Judge Eileen Cannon has decided to think about it a little bit longer. Cannon had hinted in a preliminary order that she would likely appoint someone to review the documents seized from former President Trump's Florida home. But just two days ago, the DOJ presented the judge with an allegation that a Trump attorney lied about turning over all classified documents. An attorney told me the judge will probably still appoint a special master, but says the Trump team played the wrong game when it left out some classified documents. What the attorney could have done once they got the grand jury subpoena in May of uh, this year is object to it, uh, object to its scope, object to what they're seeking, uh, or even just seek clarification as to what they're seeking. But um, Trump's attorneys didn't do that. They purported to comply with the subpoena. And I think now they're in a bit of trouble because they didn't object to it. But he says both sides are playing games. On one side, the DOJ says Trump withheld classified documents. On the other side, Trump says he declassified all the documents. The truth is uh, neither of those opinions matter at all because DOJ was actually pretty careful, maybe sneaky, whatever you want to call it, um, in terms of how they worded the subpoena. The subpoena did not talk about classified documents at all. It only talked about things that are labeled classified. So that's kind of the trick there. He said Trump's team was also tricky about how they worded their certification and didn't comply fully with the subpoena. If you don't just take the exact language from the, from the subpoena and copy it over into your certification, say, I have done everything in the subpoena, and just copy and paste basically the language, if you start changing that language around, of course, that's going to raise red flags on the other side. So I, I don't think that was very smart. According to the attorney, the subpoena issue has nothing to do with whether the court should appoint a special master. And a photo of top-secret documents that the DOJ gave to the court should not have been submitted. 
Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Two states are demanding answers from the Biden administration. Their lawsuit unveiled direct communications between the government and big tech companies. Here's NTD's Iris Tao with what they found and why they say it's a coordinated effort to censor free speech. More pressure on a Department of Justice already under fire. In a Wednesday statement to the court, attorney generals from Missouri and Louisiana are demanding the DOJ turn over communications between top-ranking officials and big tech companies. That comes after their lawsuit, first filed in May, forced the DOJ to turn over emails showing dozens of federal officials communicating with platforms about what's seen as misinformation. So what the uh, discovery have, has revealed is a really massive coordinated effort between uh, the federal government and big tech to censor the speech of Americans who disagree with the government on various topics. Uh, COVID is a big one. Uh, also the election, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Janine Yunus, an attorney representing private plaintiffs who also joined the lawsuit, tells NTD that a discovery shows the White House and agencies pressuring tech companies to censor unfavorable topics. Now, what keeps happening is as we learn more information, we keep finding more and more people are involved. This is larger uh, and more sweeping than anybody ever knew. In one of the uncovered emails, a Facebook official in 2021 wrote to the Surgeon General, quote, our teams met today to better understand the scope of what the White House expects from us on misinformation going forward. So government officials talking to social media companies about misinformation, how is that a problem? That's an issue because it implicates the First Amendment. So the First Amendment prohibits the government from um, creating laws or being really involved in policing the speech of Americans. Um, when, the, when the government is using tech companies to do that, that's effectively state action. The, the government can't just use uh, private actors to do what it can't do directly. While the DOJ has turned over communications by some federal officials, the suing states say the DOJ is refusing to reveal ones involving the highest-ranking officials. The Missouri Attorney General said on Thursday they're asking the DOJ to produce those records and that they're just getting started. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Arizona's governor is now the latest U.S. politician to visit Taiwan, and he has a mission to woo suppliers for the new $12 billion semiconductor manufacturing plant under construction in his state. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey met with Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen on Thursday. There, they discussed economic and educational cooperation. Arizona stands with Taiwan, and we look forward to building on the many opportunities ahead. Taiwanese semiconductor maker TSMC is building a new plant in Arizona of Arizona's commitment to the growing relationship with Taiwan. Last month, I was proud to sign legislation establishing our state's first foreign trade office in Taiwan. Ducey arrived in Taiwan on Tuesday. His trip is focusing on semiconductors, critical microchips that are used in everything from household electronics to military gear. These microchips have become a battleground in the technology competition between the U.S. and China. Ducey is the most recent U.S. politician to visit Taiwan, following Indiana's governor, Senator Marsha Blackburn, and Senator Edward Markey. The round of visits came after Beijing's fierce reaction to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to the island. The Chinese military conducted week-long military drills in the waters surrounding it. 
In the face of authoritarian expansionism and the economic challenges of the post-pandemic era, we look forward to bolstering cooperation with the United States in the semiconductor and other high-tech industries, building more secure and resilient supply chains, and jointly producing democracy chips to safeguard the interests of our democratic partners and create greater prosperity. Tsai says she's confident Taiwan and Arizona will deepen cooperation in education, culture and trade, and that Taiwan and the U.S. will continue to build alliances to safeguard peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. And Texas is now busing illegal immigrants to Chicago in addition to New York and Washington. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot loves to tout that her city welcomes illegal immigrants. They are seeing the chaos that has been caused by the Biden administration. Well, I got news for New York. I got news for Washington, D.C., as well as the rest of the country. We are not done yet. There are more cities on our list. Mayor Lightfoot's office accused the Texas governor of having, quote, no shame or humanity. The mayors of both D.C. and New York have complained that they lack resources. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has called it a humanitarian crisis and twice asked President Biden to send in the National Guard. Her requests were denied. By sending buses to sanctuary cities, Abbott says he hopes to make a point about the impact of Biden's open border policies. The governor is also trying to provide relief to overrun border towns. He plans to keep the buses running until the president secures the border. And Californians are warned not to charge their electric vehicles just days after the state announced the ban on the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Just days ago, the chair of the California Air Resources Board announced their plan to cut emissions, which she said could change the world. With the phasing out of new sales of internal combustion engine vehicles, this could well be the final set of major criteria pollutant emission standards for new light-duty conventional vehicles. I just really want to thank all of the hard work that went into building this package. And now, Californians are warned that they could face blackouts if they charge their electrical cars. The warning came from the company that oversees California's grid. They say due to extreme heat, there is an urgent need to conserve electricity from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Thursday was the second day of voluntary restricted power usage, and the company warns it may continue through Labor Day weekend. The warning further explained that the power grid is stressed because demand for electricity remains high and there is less solar energy available. And when you're already short of electricity and then you're going to require all the cars sold to be electric, you know, how is that going to work? I spoke with the president of Truth in Climate and Energy, Frank Lassay, who explained why California is short on energy. The big difference is, is that wind and solar power, which seems to be the, the trend, uh, is part-time power. And you need a full-time power supply to uh, make your grid, electric grids work. Electric grids store no power. That means that demand must be met with, by supply all the time. And they're just short, chronically short of electricity. And it's going to get worse because they just aren't building enough replacement energy fast enough. And they want to rely completely on wind and solar. Then he added this. You have to store that energy or you have to pay for what we're doing now. Why it's going to be so expensive is that electric grid has to have 
uh, power generated and put on the grid as demand to meet demand all the time. So what we're ending up doing is paying for full-time power, which is coal, natural gas, and nuclear power, and adding part-time power to it. Also on Thursday, California lawmakers passed a bill to extend the life of the state's only nuclear power plant. We reached out to the office of California Governor Gavin Newsom for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. And in New York, forcibly placing people in quarantine camps, that's what the governor of New York has been trying to make possible in the Empire State. But she's facing serious pushback. NTD spoke with a state senator and an attorney involved in the case. In April, a regulation called Isolation and Quarantine Procedures went into effect in New York State. One thing the regulation did was give the Department of Health the power to forcibly place people in quarantine facilities. Some lawmakers challenged the regulation in court, and the New York State Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional in July. But according to the attorney and a state senator, the governor filed a notice of appeal, indicating she wants to challenge the Supreme Court's decision. NDD couldn't independently verify if the governor really plans to appeal. New York State Senator George Borello told NTD people could be placed in those facilities if they show signs of COVID-19, food poisoning, the flu, and other diseases. A local public health official would have the power to utilize law enforcement to come to someone's home and say, I believe your child was exposed to any one of these, this laundry list of diseases with no proof, no proof is required, and say, I'm going to take your child from your home. Well, when will I see my child again? We'll let you know. Where are you taking him? We'll let you know. I mean, this is the kind of thing you see in China. So to answer your question as to why would she push forward, I think, like her predecessor, uh, she's obsessed with the power. The senator and the attorney in the case both told NTD that the governor ignored the legislative process by making the law as a Department of Health regulation. She allegedly implemented it without passing a bill or getting approval from state lawmakers. I've spoken to Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, very, very few people, very few people have supported this idea. Bobby Cox was the attorney for the case and volunteered her time to work on it. She says such a law affects the entire United States because what happens in New York tends to spread. If New York all of a sudden has quarantine facilities as a means to stop the spread of communicable diseases, then what's to stop all the other states from looking and saying, well, wait a second here, New York is allowed to forcibly quarantine their citizens. Why, why can't we do that? She gave an example. In 2019, New York State decided that children can't get religious exemptions from vaccines. After that, Connecticut implemented the same law, and New Jersey tried to follow suit. NTD reached out to Governor Hochul's office to ask why the state needs this regulation, but didn't hear back before broadcast time. You can catch the full interview with attorney Bobby Cox on NTD's The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drukier this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And as debate over the cost of college and President Biden's plans to cover more student loans continues, a powerful voice in the cultural landscape is pushing back. Charlie Kirk, founder and president of Turning Point USA, has written a new book examining whether colleges today deliver on their promises and at what cost. I spoke with him earlier today about his book, The College Scam, how America's universities are bankrupting and brainwashing away the future of America's youth. Charlie Kirk, welcome to our show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. 
Now, President Biden's plan for student loan forgiveness has sparked a national conversation about college and loans. In your new book, you suggest that college is, in fact, a scam and should be avoided. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, look, so first, uh, and Joe Biden actually admits this, as Elizabeth Warren did for Joe Biden, where she said that the vast majority of people that have student loans don't have a degree to show for it. And I say, exactly. They shouldn't have been going to college in the first place. That college, uh, vast, so 59% of people that go to college will graduate. That means 41% will drop out, 41%. And out of the people that end up do graduating, uh, if you end up finding a job, uh, only about 40% end up finding jobs that require college degrees. And so that, that's not to mention all the wokeism and all the nonsense that stems from these universities. So my contention that I have when it comes to college is that they are overbloated, highly subsidized, they produce awful and bad ideas, and this bailout from Joe Biden is an insult to people that decided not to go to college, the muscular class, people that went through college responsibly, and so we're pushing back against it rather hard. And do you think that college can be reformed? Potentially, um, but not anytime soon. I mean, these colleges are so massive. They're, they're industries. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry. Instead, I tell people to go to get two-year technical school, community college. Uh, you know, again, of course, I carve out Hillsdale College, which is a wonderful college, and they do a great job. But most colleges are not like that. Um, I think the only way to reform college is for us to start our own in response to what college has become. And Turning Point USA has spent a lot of time on college campuses. Has what you've seen there solidified your stance? Oh, yeah. In fact, it's a main motivator and driver as to why I wrote the book. You know, for the last uh, 10 years, I've been visiting universities across the country, uh, starting college campus chapters and really being focused on the education of our young people. And the more I learn and the more I travel, the more I realize that these universities are un-American, they're anti-American, um, they're against our values, and they are getting our young people into debt and in a very, very serious and troubling way. And so part of what we are focusing on with the book, The College Scam, people can find it at collegescam.com, is that you do not have to go to college to succeed and that you could break free of kind of the um, pressure that so many people feel to go to college and I think that uh, people are really getting their eyes open thanks to our book. Right. And you mentioned a few of the other pathways that people could take. Could, could you dig into that some more? Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about it a lot in the book. So you could take a gap year. You could become a carpenter, a welder, an electrician, you know, a computer engineer. Or maybe if you want to become a lawyer or a doctor and you need to go to four-year college, then do it the best way you can. Maybe you go to community college first. Uh, maybe you go to the least radical school you possibly can. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to change the way we view college. College does not get criticized nearly enough in our society. It's kind of like an expectation. You go there and that's it. I'm going after it with a blowtorch and saying, no, 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 no. This, is, this has been rigged against students. This has, from the top to bottom, done severe damage to our country. And that we need to change the way we approach it and talk about it. And that a critical view of college is not just, nece is not just appropriate, but it's necessary. In fact, it's good for students good for parents, good for alumni. Um, the only people that won't like it are the corrupt college kleptocrats that have benefited so much from this incredibly broken system. And in terms of student loan forgiveness, what do you think is the solution for those people who are in debt tens of thousands of dollars already? Yeah, part of it is, you know, you made a choice and you got to live up to that choice. But I am sympathetic 
to some form of student loan forgiveness if we were to seize the endowments. Don't make the U.S. taxpayers pay for it, but instead you have these massive university endowments that actually don't go towards tuition subsidies most times. So for example, Harvard has a $45 billion endowment. So let's make Harvard start to pay for some student loan forgiveness or Yale with their $35 billion endowment. U.S. taxpayers should not be on the hook for somebody's bad decision or someone's poor decision. However, I do have some sympathy, I have to say, for someone that was lied to and that was told to go get a piece of paper that they shouldn't have done. That's what my whole book is about. So I do have a soft spot for that, but I'm going to hold the line and say the U.S. taxpayer should not be engaged or involved at all in uh, bailing students out just because they decided to go to college. And if student loans are forgiven, there's concern that it could actually raise the cost of college tuition. Well, how, how concerned are you about that? Yeah, I mean, it will. I mean, if the colleges are able to tell their prospective students or their prospective population, hey, the, the tuition really doesn't matter because it'll be, be forgiven, then why would colleges ever lower their tuition? Colleges have no incentive right now to actually lower their tuition. They're not going to get an incentive from students. They're not going to get an incentive from graduates. Instead, what student loan forgiveness does is it will artificially raise tuition even further for future students. And do you think that the government should be guaranteeing student loans? No. I think the government should get completely and totally out of the student loan business. 99% of all student loans are given out by the federal government. Private student loans uh, used to be a thing, and it's no longer. I think that if you want to go to college and if you think it's a good idea, then you should have to be able to prove to a private sector bank why they should take a bet on you. What are you studying? What were your grades? Are you responsible? Right now, we have a one-size-fits-all strategy where everyone gets the same student loan interest rate regardless of what you're studying or regardless of where you're from. That's insane. If you're a straight-A student and you're going to Caltech and you're studying engineering, I would take, I'll give you some money for that. You know, 4% interest rate, pay me back. I'm sure they will. But that point is that what we have happening right now is the exact opposite, which is an entire population of students that are all being treated the same and the government is guaranteeing it, which only creates bad behavior over a long period of time. What's your message for people thinking about going to university? Um, just think twice. I mean, it's okay to take a gap year. If you are going for sure to college, then make sure you know your values and make sure you know how to navigate them with strong conservative pro-American beliefs. But just be careful. Um, these universities are very good at indoctrinating and turning kids against parents and against Western values. And so, look, if you're going to college, I hope you survive. Um, I really do. All right, Charlie Kirk, founder and president of Turning Point USA and author of the new book, The College Scam. Thank you. Thank you. And over in Kansas, in a lawsuit settlement involving gender pronouns, a middle school has agreed to pay a teacher $95,000 in damages. The school had suspended the teacher after she wouldn't address a female student by her preferred male name. Pamela Rickard, a math teacher at Fort Riley Middle School, said the school suspended her for three days last year. That's after she referred to a female student as Miss with her legal and enrolled last name not her preferred male first name. The school later adopted a policy asking staff not to disclose a student's preferred name or pronouns to parents without the student's permission. The teacher sued the school in March with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom. 
The organization welcomed the settlement on Wednesday, saying, quote, no school district should ever force teachers to willfully deceive parents or engage in any speech that violates their deeply held religious beliefs. And reading and math scores have plunged in the U.S. The Education Department found that fourth graders had the biggest drop in decades. The department took its first look since the lockdowns. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Fourth grade reading and math scores plunged during the pandemic. Reading scores had their biggest drop since 1990. Mathematics had its first ever drop. Whenever you start a new initiative, there's something called the implementation dip. Donna Marie Cozine is the CEO of Consult DMC, an educational consultancy, as well as the author of So You Want to Be a Superintendent. Cozine believes scores will go back up as kids physically return to classrooms. The face-to-face -face time that children get in school is is critical. Teachers, especially in elementary school, are able to pull students in small groups where they can really drill down and focus on the specific areas of need. Experts say this poor performance will affect more than the kids themselves. Aggregate test score performance is related to economic activity over the long run. And so the less skilled our children are, um, the less productive our economy will be. Jay Green is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the author of Failure Up Close, What Happens, Why It Happens, and What We Can Learn From It. Green says the U.S.'s academic performance is mediocre in comparison to the performances of other countries. According to TIMS, an international study of academic performance, America's fourth graders are in 15th place when it comes to math. Meanwhile, one of America's biggest competitors, China, is in fourth place. In science, America is in ninth place. China is in fifth place. The comparisons to China are problematic because there's good reason to believe that the Chinese test scores are not reliable. Jay Green believes China may be cheating in the Tim study. There are, however, indications Chinese students are doing very well. There's a more support or a discipline, you know, and cooperation from parents and families than U.S. system. But, you know, they're not good at, you know, uh, inciting or encouraging creativity and uh, free expressions. Frank Tian Xie is a business professor at the University of South Carolina, Aiken. Xie says Asian culture prioritizes education more so than Western culture does. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And in weather, the tropics in the Atlantic have been remarkably quiet this year. August will not have a single named storm for the first time in 25 years. And that's despite the NOAA and other experts forecasting an above-average season. The National Hurricane Center is actively watching three areas for tropical cyclone formation over the next five days. Two have a high chance of forming, and one off the west coast of Africa has a medium chance of developing. Computer forecast models show a possible hurricane spinning toward the U.S. by Labor Day weekend, but the models then show the storm doing a U-turn and moving back into the Atlantic. And police body cam video shows the moment two men were rescued off the coast of Boston Harbor. Local media reported the men were father and son. Their lobster boat sank after striking rocks near Graves Light Station, about nine miles from the coast. Both men appeared weak from the ordeal and struggled to climb onto the rescue craft. The incident was possibly caused by the boat becoming entangled in a lobster trap, which led to the vessel colliding with rocks near the light station.
And if you have any f news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a failed California bill that sought to legalize psychedelic drugs could be revived. An organization seeking to provide medical help to veterans gives us their take on the bill. And the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos just became the second highest paid player in the NFL. NTD's Dave Martin has the details of Russell Wilson's nine-figure deal. That and more coming up on NTD News. Welcome back. As California wraps up its legislative session, lawmakers are doing everything they can to get bills to the governor. One that was set to legalize psychedelic drugs was pulled last month, but it could be revived. NTD's Daniel Hall heard from two advocates of psychedelic drug use for strictly medical reasons. California's Democratic Senator Scott Weiner first introduced Senate Bill 519 in February 2021. Before heavy alterations and ultimately being put on hold, the bill would have decriminalized the possession, use, and social sharing of limited quantities of certain psychedelic drugs, including DMT, LSD, ecstasy, and psilocybin mushrooms. Marcus and Amber Capone, founders of the charity Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, or VETS, have been aiding veterans seeking medically supervised psychedelic treatments. Amber warned about recreational use of these substances. Without proper medical supervision or therapeutic use, um, someone could receive improper dosing, sourcing, the set and setting could be wrong, and the experience could actually ultimately end up being more traumatizing or confusing if they're not properly supported. But on the other side, her husband Marcus said psychedelic treatment helped him where years of therapy couldn't. I was a Navy SEAL. Um, I came, came back with you know, just a host of, of, uh, of, of things that I was dealing with. And I, you know, I was in the system and the system wasn't working for me, including mood stabilizers and, and brain clinics. And it really wasn't until I found um, a retreat that was operating outside the U.S. for many years. I found true healing, you know, through psychedelic medicine. Ongoing studies have shown that psychedelic treatment may be an effective treatment for medically qualified individuals, such as military veterans who are suffering from a variety of mental disorders. But the Capones stressed the medical setting. We support uh, the medical use of psychedelics. Uh, we feel that psychedelics will be uh, potentially uh, uh, a powerful tool in the future of mental health care. Um, the drugs need to be administered in a professional um, you know, medical environment. The assembly heavily criticized and amended the bill multiple times. In an official statement released by Senator Weiner, he expressed his disappointment in the decision by the assembly. Marty Ribera, a former police officer and drug counselor, told the California Globe that the bill was blindly decriminalizing these drugs without any proper research or study. But he fully supported that the drugs should be studied and evaluated for all potential risks and benefits. You know, like anything else, all medicines come with risks. Um, you know, the risks right now, uh, individuals that have uh, pre-existing uh, either family uh, psychosis or schizophrenia should not, um, you know, be utilizing uh, psychedelic medicines for uh, any type of treatment today. Uh, at least that's what the... 
um, current research is, is showing. Senator Weiner said he is planning on reintroducing the bill again next year. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And staying in California, whilst teachers in that state have been hard to find as of late, one justification is low pay. But a research director shares that the total median salary of California teachers was almost six figures as of just several years ago. They do that with the help of his organization, Todd Madison, research director at Transparent California, has collected 36.7 million records from public education agencies since 2010. And if you look at all that data and run some numbers, the total median compensation of a teacher in the state of California in 2020 was $119,422 a year. He explains to California insider's Siamak Karami that total compensation includes the value of benefits, which are health care, retirement plans, etc. The total median pay is $91,097. I think teachers are great. You know, I really appreciate the work that teachers do for us. We have many friends in my family that are teachers, awesome people. You know, we deserve to, we should support them in any way we can. But at some point, we have to say teachers are being fairly paid and maybe we should use some of that extra money to go towards the education of our kids. He says in his school district, the teachers union asked for increased pay, but at the same time, school staff would have to be reduced to make up for the increase. The starting rate for most uh, districts for teachers tends to be about forty-five to $50,000 a year. That's where they start. To focus on that, though, is, is similar to saying, you know, if you're, a, if you're a resident, if you're studying to be a doctor and you're a resident, you make very little money, therefore doctors don't make any money. That's not true. You know, once you get past that residency, you make a lot of money if you're a doctor. Madison says superintendents are paid on average 270000 During the pandemic, Non-credentialed teachers have stepped in to fill for the shortage of licensed teachers. You know, the teachers themselves are in it for the kids. They want what's best for our kids. The union, however, promotes this idea that it's a, it's a low-paid career, and as a result, I think they have a hard time attracting people. He hopes superintendents' compensation would be performance-based, dependent on how schools are doing. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now, over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The Denver Broncos have signed quarterback Russell Wilson to a five-year, $245 million extension. The deal includes $165 million guaranteed, according to multiple sources, which would make it the third biggest contract in NFL history, trailing only Deshaun Watson's and Kyler Murray's signed earlier this year. Meanwhile, the $49 million per year average puts him just behind two-time reigning MVP Aaron Rodgers. The extension is on top of the two years still remaining on his current deal. Denver gave up a fortune, two first-round picks, two second-round picks, plus three players to acquire Wilson from Seattle earlier this year. The 33-year-old has made nine Pro Bowls in his 10-year career and previously led the Seahawks to a victory in Super Bowl 48. The Broncos start the season playing on Monday Night Football against Wilson's old team, the Seahawks, on September 12th. In tennis news, women's top seed Iga Fiatek beat American Sloane Stephens this afternoon at the U.S. Open in a straight sets victory. The two-time Grand Slam winner finished the match in just 73 minutes. Sviatek previously won the French Open in June as part of a 37-match winning streak. 
Meanwhile, last night's action saw six-time U.S. Open champion Serena Williams stave off her opponent Andrew Penning retirement in a three-set win over second-seeded Annette Contevate. The 23-time Grand Slam champion has had a slow start to her season, uncharacteristically losing three of her first four matches after a 12-month hiatus because of a leg injury. But she won her opener in straight sets and now is on to the third round. The 40-year-old previously wrote an essay for Vogue saying she plans to evolve away from tennis. Her impending retirement has drawn the crowds to Flushing Meadows, setting back-to-back -back attendance records in both her wins, with nearly 30,000 in the audience last night. Her next match is scheduled for Friday night. Finally, in baseball, Angels two-way star Shohei Otani moved into exclusive company last night when he hit his 30th home run of the season. The three-run shot was the difference in the win over New York, but individually he became the first player in the history of the game to have at least 30 home runs at the plate and at least 10 wins on the mound. While Otani's 11 wins as a starting pitcher tie him for seventh best in the AL, he's third in home runs as a team's designated hitter. The feat moved it past the great Babe Ruth, who is baseball's last two-way star. Ruth is the only other player with at least 10 wins and homers in the same season when he hit 11 home runs and won 13 games in 1918 for the Boston Red Sox as the team was transitioning him to be a full-time hitter. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Prime Minister Boris Johnson calls on the UK to go nuclear and go large in his last major speech. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has called for the UK to go nuclear and go large. During a speech at Sizewell, he announced that $700 million would go to a new nuclear power plant on the Suffolk coast. Here's a report from NTD's Trevor Piper. So what I was hearing before is... At his last major speech in office, Boris Johnson confirmed £700 million of funding for the Sizewell Sea nuclear plant in Suffolk. In the course of the next few weeks, I am absolutely confident that it will get over the line. And we will get it over the line because it will be absolute madness not to. This project will create tens of thousands of jobs, but it will also power six million homes. That is roughly a fifth, six million homes, roughly a fifth of all the homes in the UK. So it will help to fix the energy needs, not just of this generation, but of the next. A baby born this year will be getting energy from Sizewell Sea long, long after she retires. The Prime Minister said the spike in gas prices driven by the invasion of Ukraine showed why nuclear generation capacity is needed. The new reactor at the Sizewell site in Suffolk is expected to be built in partnership with energy firm EDF. Let's think about the future, let's think about our kids and our grandchildren, about the next generation. And so I say to you with the, uh, with the prophetic candour and clarity of one who is uh, about to, to hand over the torch of office. I say go nuclear and go large and go with Sizewell C. Downing Street was unable to give further details about the funding announcement. But the total cost of the Sizewell C project is expected to be around £20 billion. Critics say it's too expensive and will take too long to build. 
A similar reactor at Hinkley Point C in Somerset began construction in 2016 and will not be online until 2027. Sizewell C is expected to begin generating electricity in the 2030s. Trevor Piper, NTD News. And the Ukraine war has contributed to the rising cost of living. But Alan Miller of the Together Association says pandemic lockdowns also had an effect. NTD's Jane Werrell spoke with him to learn more. So I'm here with Alan Miller, who co-founded the Nighttime Industries Association and was also a driving force behind the Together Declaration. So, hi Alan, um, can you tell me what the Together, Together Declaration is and how it started? Yes, well, what it is, originally it was a, a petition uh, with over 200,000 signatories to say that we did not want to have vaccine passports anywhere in society. And that's when we launched that. Uh, but there are also a number of other points that we had uh, in our like manifesto, which was that we should have free speech, no uh, further lockdowns or restrictions and impositions, that um, we, the public should be able to be engaged with and debated properly and not, uh, and we should have parliamentary scrutiny and open debate and discussion. Uh, the kids didn't need the jab. Uh, and uh, that we should have no vaccine mandates. And of course, we managed to win that and stop the vaccine mandates, which is a very important point that the public uh, asserted itself, campaign groups, people all across the UK, which the world saw and subsequently has had an impact everywhere. Many people thought it wasn't possible. Um, so, you know, uh, we also delivered to 10 Downing Street uh, over 200,000 signatures and another 160,000 against the vaccine mandate. Uh, and what we now have is as an association, a together association. Our goal is to make sure the public is not sidelined again. We do not have any positions and we've seen the cost of lockdowns now. Everyone's seeing it. We're seeing it in spiralling inflation, in gas and energy prices. We're seeing it in 7 million waiting for the NHS. We're seeing it in the kids' results uh, at GCSE level. We're seeing it with sterling. We're seeing it with credit card debt uh, across the board. And what we've got some new campaigns to address those things. In terms of the cost of living, um, we hear about the war in Ukraine pushing up the energy bills, which is a factor, but what impact have the lockdown policies had on the cost of living that we're facing today? So we saw that there was uh, people were deciding whether to heat or eat way before uh, the conflict in Ukraine. We know that when you lock down society, unprecedented as it happens, but when you restrict trade, when you stop people going out spending, when everyone's at home, shuttered away, that the dynamic productivity of society gets suffocated. We uh, know that the consequences of that have been several and, and, and everywhere. And this is a cost of lockdown crisis. Yes, it's being exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, but this is a cost of lockdown crisis. We've limited a range of things from trade to activity and business. We've seen tens of thousands of businesses collapse in retail, hospitality and others. Now we think many more will go as a consequence of this. We know that the multiplier effect of that in terms of jobs and income and expenditure is significant and huge. These are the costs of lockdowns that are imposed on us allegedly to keep us safe. Now people are backtracking from it, uh, but it's unacceptable and we say never again. And tell me about the mental health issues that people are facing after lockdowns. Well, you know, one of the things is that when you isolate people, it's very damaging. Uh, we know that uh, even in incarceration, it's a particular form of punishment in very exceptional circumstances. People were isolated, people were very terrified and fearful, uh, and therefore that when people are experiencing certain things, they will become more profound and damaging. And we know that a range of areas, we've sadly seen many statistics in terms of impacts on children,
children, domestic violence and abuse and a range of others. I would say that we have to be careful not to overly catastrophize just the idea that we're all damaged and we're all like mentally ill. There is a bit of that discussion in society because in the end that's a similar flip side of the coin that says that all, all of us are just vulnerable and we need to have things done for us. But it's been very significant and problematic. And um, what can we expect next from the Together Declaration? Uh, we are going to be continuing with our campaign to insist that we axe the tax, get rid of the green tax and the VAT, uh, and indeed, what's the plan? And we want to know what the plan is for the NHS. We are campaigning heavily to scrap the online safety bill. Uh, we've seen many takedowns already on social media. Now we see people like Rishi Sunak and Grant Shapp saying, well, actually, they didn't want to have the lockdowns. And But many people were suffocated, smeared, called names for that, told we were presenting misinformation. We need to have open dialogue and discourse. That's what underpins a free society. We're demanding that. Uh, and then uh, we've got many more plans that are going to involve people taking more of a stand together locally and nationally. Coming up, the heat is picking up in the Golden State. One Southern California zoo gives its residents frozen treats to stay cool. That and more after this short break. One Southern California Zoo homemade ice treats are being offered to residents from lions to kangaroos. Some are even getting extra showers to regulate their body temperatures as a Labor Day weekend heat wave approaches. Zookeepers in Santa Barbara are taking extra steps to keep their animals cool. As California heads into what experts are calling a dangerous heat wave. In the lion enclosure, handlers are leaving out joints of meat wrapped in ice for six-year-old Ralph, his mate Felicia, and their daughter Pauline. They're also being given ice blocks made with meat flavor to try to keep them cool, though the hot temperatures mean they don't last long. They got some ice blocks which are made out of beef uh, bone broth as well as some diluted goat's milk on it. And by providing that little bit of extra flavor to it, the animals, they might lick it, get a little bit of that extra hydration and cooling that they might not even realize. So we're kind of tricking them into helping them stay cool. In the recently opened Australian walkabout area, Banjo, the emu, enjoys a shower from handler Kelly Summers. For 15 minutes, she stands with a hose and Banjo savors every last drop of water. He loves the dripping action that comes off of his body. He loves the sensation of the coolness, and he loves to preen his own feathers, so he could do this all day. <laughs> the creative cooling processes entertain zoo guests. I mean, that was, that was something unusual for me. I'd never seen that before, but I know the stream, the, the heat is it's on. So yeah, definitely we have to take care of the animals like this way. Just like uh, people, right? We have to keep them, keep them hydrated and well cared for. But I would assume that they're used to the heat. The gorillas are used to that kind of climate. A few feet away, kangaroos and wallabies lay in the shade. After zookeepers pour a bucket of ice onto the ground, the famously skittish animals suddenly become quite assertive. Whether it's a little bit of small ice cubes for animals, um, 
or whether it's a really large ice block, we do need to take into account for the physiology of the animal, the size of the animal, also the number of the animals. We don't want competition over like an ice block if it's for a group of animals. Uh, that's where maybe a bunch of small ice cubes might be more appropriate instead of providing just one solid ice block for them. Keepers removed a family of seven otters from their enclosure to drain out wastewater and replace it with 200 pounds of ice treats. Once released, it takes only a few minutes of uncertainty before the pups are grabbing blocks of ice in their mouths and swimming away with them as their parents lick the fishy popsicles. The otters absolutely love it. You know, this is a nice warm day for them. Uh, they're always going to be playing in the water, but by providing the extra ice for them, it's a little bit, uh, it's going to be a little bit more cooling, refreshing for them. It's also going to be something more uh, novel, stimulating for them, most both mentally and physically as well. So the ice has multiple benefits for our animals. According to the National Weather Service, the heat wave will gradually build throughout the week, hitting the southern part of the state first but then scorching the northern regions over the long holiday weekend. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.